Let's pray again. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And we do ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of it and now to the preaching of it. Lord, we ask again to show us wondrous things from your law. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently began work through my uh, a master's degree program that I have been dabbling with in the last couple of years and started that up uh, a couple of weeks ago when there are eight-week courses that we need to take. And one of the first projects, well, really the first project of the class that I'm in right now, gave us the option of four or five texts that were very brief, only two or three verses long. And we were supposed to look at just those two or three verses and to write a very short paper on what we thought those two or three verses meant. And of course, they picked very obscure, difficult passages that were hard to understand. And that if you don't have the greater context, it would be very difficult to interpret. But there are other passages that you could read a verse, two verses, three verses, and you could say, okay, I I get the point of what he's trying to say. And it would be very simple. That you would look at it and say, okay, thou shalt not steal. Got it, right? Or let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. Okay, I got it. It's very simple, very packaged, very straightforward, imperative statement. But you have yet again another difficult passage. And as Jeff was reading it, again, you must have been thinking to yourself, What do I get from this passage? Uh, How is this going to help me Monday morning? How when I wake up is knowing the vision about a ram and a goat and the goat goat has one horn, the ram has a couple lopsided horns. How is that going to help me on a Monday morning? And I want to show you from this text, Lord willing, how vital it is and how it can practically help you even today as we leave this place. But there are times in our lives, no doubt, where we feel sick to our stomach when we see something bad that has happened. Where we've seen something in the news or we've read about something and it literally made us sick. Our bodies felt ill. Or even living in a world that praises certain evil practices that can make us sick to even think about. And although this is true and there are those areas that would make us sick, we can rejoice as Christians... In the knowledge that Jesus Christ is going to return and restore all things. That should be hopeful for you. That should fuel you today to even consider right from the outset that although bad things are happening, although bad things will continue to happen, there is hope for the Christian because Jesus is going to come and he's going to restore all things and he's going to make you a part of it. And we affirm this as a congregation, that we await the second coming of Christ where he will make all things new. But the question for us this morning is what do we do in the period of time now and then? How do you wait well for the second coming of Jesus? You and I are a part of at least a couple of institutions. We are a part of the kingdom of this world. And we are all a part of the kingdom of God if we are believers. And if you're anything like me, you have an optimism in the kingdom of God. That you believe that God's kingdom is going to go forward and that it's going to be triumphant. And that the church is going to be victorious. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That there is this great optimism and this great hope for the church that Christ is going to keep his bride safe. But if you're anything like me on the other side... You may have a pessimism toward the kingdom of this world. 
And there are several positions on this and how we should view the kingdom of God and how we should view the kingdom of man. Do we view them with optimism or do we view them with pessimism? Some Christians have a very optimistic view of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. They believe that as the gospel spreads throughout the whole world, that things are going to get better and better throughout the earth, that things are going to uh, move forward as the kingdom of God moves forward, and that as the kingdom of God grows in this world, that the kingdom of man is going to benefit from that and get better and better. I personally don't hold that position, but of all the three positions, I hope that's right. You ever been in that position where you read something or you hear of another position? You're like, I don't agree with them, but I hope that they're right. Uh, I hope that these guys are right, but I don't think that they are. There's a second group of Christians that believe in some ways that the future of the church and the future of the world is pessimistic. Like We should view them both kind of pessimistically. So the, the first believes that the future of the church and the world is bright, but the second view holds that the future of the church and the world is bleak. And that's a position I hope is totally wrong. Because I I want the church to be victorious, but there's a third perspective. And that's kind of split right down the middle to where we have optimism in the church, but we have a pessimism in the world. And I think that the, the future is bright for the kingdom of God, but I think that it is bleak for the kingdom of man. And no matter where you fall on that spectrum... Maybe in general you are a little more pessimistic about the church and the world. Maybe you're optimistic about the church and the world. And maybe you're kind of in the middle where I am. But no matter where you fall on that spectrum, I think that it is vital that we are all on the same page in regard to how we practically live until the second coming of Jesus. So again, you may be very optimistic or you may be very pessimistic or you may be down in the middle of the two. But the practical reality for all of us should be the same. Despite how we believe in the end and and how all of the end time stuff shapes up, it has to be imperative that we continue to put our hand to the work that God has given us to do. So despite if you're pessimistic about how everything is going to shape up, there is still a responsibility that you take up the mantle that God has given you and to continue forward. And we see this very clearly reflected in Daniel's life in the last verse of this chapter in verse 27. Look at verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. But notice what he does. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Which, by the way, should give us some comfort. If Daniel didn't understand it and Gabriel told him the interpretation, if we don't quite understand the vision, but we understand the principle of this passage, I think we'll do well. So despite the vision... Despite the illness it brings upon him, despite being appalled by what he has seen, Daniel got up and he went about the king's business. He went about his job. We'll address the practical side of that a little bit more later. But before we get there, what is in this vision that has made Daniel sick? You remember last week that he saw all of these uh, beasts, creepy beasts coming out of the great sea. And we don't have an indication that that made him sick. We have an indication at the end of chapter 7 that he was greatly alarmed and his color changed, that he was stunned by what he saw. But it doesn't necessarily say that he was sick for days and laying in his bed like the end of chapter 8 here. Yet this vision he sees in Daniel 8 makes him physically ill for days. 
And what he sees within this vision, it begins broadly concerning the world events that are going to come, although he's not going to see them, and it narrows down to eventually what is going to happen into his former home and what is called, in this passage, the glorious land. There will be some aspect, uh, to, to go back a little bit, there will be some aspect which he will see. He will see the Medes and the Persians overtake Babylon, but beyond that, with what he sees happen in his glorious land, in his homeland, he will not see. And so the first point I have for you on the back of your bulletin, a very simple outline, but what will happen in the world? Within this chapter, we can essentially divide it right down the middle. In the first half, we see the vision of this ram and this goat. And in the last half, we see the interpretation of the vision by Gabriel. For our purposes here, I'm going to try to really meld those two and bring those two halves together to help us to understand something of what Daniel sees and what the vision means. But let me remind you, you look at the first verse within this chapter, and it says, In the third year of King Belshazzar, And so we're continuing with the flashbacks that we started with last year or last week. The vision that we had in Daniel chapter 7 said in the first year of King Belshazzar. In chapter 8, we have the third year of King Belshazzar. But you remember what happened back in in chapter 5 with Belshazzar and that he's having this great feast. He's throwing this massive banquet of like a thousand people. And Daniel comes in and he interprets what this hand has written onto the wall. But as we have seen, and going back in time this week and last week, we learn that the vision that Daniel has comes 11 years before the end of Babylon. So Daniel has this vision in chapter 8, but the vision and what it foretells in the end of Babylon actually happens 11 years before the end of Babylon comes. So Daniel is holding on to this information for over a decade before it happened. So long before there was even a threat to Babylon, it had been revealed to him that the Medes and the Persians were going to conquer them. And this is reflected in Daniel when he stands up before Belshazzar. And you remember that Daniel was very upfront with the king. He told him like it was. He was very straightforward. And for Daniel, and something that he would have to come to, he had come to grips with a decade before, now he was standing before the king and saying, yeah, this is what's going to happen. The Medes and the Persians are on the way. But in verse 3... Daniel looks up, and and it's almost like in the vision he's been transported a couple hundred miles away from Babylon where he is. And in verse 3, he looks up and he sees a ram standing on the bank of a canal. And this ram had two horns, which were very high, but yet there's one horn that is higher than the other horn. Now, Gabriel, the angel, gives Daniel the interpretation of the vision. And he says that this vision with the one horn higher than the other is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And you see that in verse 20. We've already seen, again, this kingdom within Daniel. We know that Darius overtakes Babylon from Belshazzar, and he represents the Medes and the Persians. But as Daniel continues watching this vision, this ram is running all over the place. And and, and again, let me kind of explain this, how I explained last week's passage, and that there's all of these pictures happening. So understand the picture. Try to envision this ram running all over the map of that part of the world and and pushing north and pushing west and and so forth and and overcoming all of this area. The the picture is vital for us to be seeing. This is what God has given to us to, to represent what is happening. And so this ram that is going west and north and south, nobody can stop him. He's headbutting every nation that comes into his way. And this symbolizes, again, these Medes and the Persians ramming their way all over the place, becoming this great kingdom within Babylon. But then Daniel, as he's continuing to watch his vision, 
a goat comes into play, right? I, I was going to try to withhold, but I can't. He's having a bad dream. <laughs> so he's got a ram and he's got a goat. This goat comes and he has a horn in the middle of his head, okay? So he's kind of like a unicorned goat. He doesn't have two horns. He just has this one horn in the middle of his head. And this goat runs at the ram and he overtakes the ram. The ram has no power against the goat. Now, the goat is seen to be Greece, right? Who conquered the Medes and the Persians. And you see this very clearly. Gabriel says in verse 21 that it is Greece. And interestingly enough, this horn in the middle of the head of the goat is the king whom we know to be Alexander the Great. And commentators are unified on this. So if you know your history, you know that Alexander the Great was an incredible conqueror. He comes to power at the age of 21 years old before he dies at the young age of 33. Uh, Imagine the map here. He rules from Europe all the way to India. And this is a massive stretch of land for that young of a man, for any man, but for that young of a man to all have under his control. And so this goat that is growing in size and defeats the Medes and the Persians is the Greek Empire. And the horn on the head of the goat is none other than Alexander the Great. But in verse 8, you see that this great horn was broken. And it's replaced by four horns. So looking at this text from our own perspective, this is a bit of a history lesson. This is the past. But when you look at it from Daniel's perspective, this is the future. That Greek, the Greek, that Greece comes and overtakes Media and Persia, that this great general of the goat is eventually taken down, but then in his place arise four generals and really four names that are quite hard to pronounce. Um, and so four come, and then from one of the four horns comes a little horn. Now, you might be thinking and think back to the last chapter that there was a little horn in that chapter, and now there's a little horn in this chapter. I think that these are different horns. Okay? Again, it is confusing. It is difficult to lock down. I think it is more likely that in Daniel 7 that the little horn is referencing a future Antichrist. I think in Daniel 8, the little horn is representing somebody very specific in history. And so I know that this is confusing, but try to stick with it. That Alexander the Great is the great horn on the head of the goat. That horn breaks. Four horns rise up in Alexander's place. And there are the names. And and, and these are the names of the four generals in history um, as well. But then out of one of these four, four horns, one of these four generals, comes a little horn who becomes a major player within history in this chapter. Specifically because of what he does to God's people. And that's why it transitions to him. That's why Alexander the Great, this great horn within this passage, is barely mentioned. This is why he's like a footnote within Daniel chapter 8. And then the four horns are a footnote as well. And then all of a sudden, this little horn is a really big deal. Look at verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece, Alexander. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limits, a king of bold face 
one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in, in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So on the stage of the world, the Medes and the Persians are eventually going to overtake Babylon. Alexander and his Greek empire, they overtake the Medes and the Persians. But now we look at what will happen in Daniel's homeland with the little horn. And so it transitions from the stage of the world to what's going to happen in the glorious land of Jerusalem. And so the vision and the interpretation begin to zero in on who this little horn is and what he's going to do to God's people in Palestine. And so what we, what we think would be good news for Daniel, that, that he's having this vision and he's seeing his homeland. Be, wow, I would just love to see home. It would be a terrible thing for him to see because his people were going to be slaughtered and the temple of God would be defiled. And historically speaking, the one who would do the slaughtering of God's people and who would defile God's temple, this little horn, would be a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a debauched man. He was ruthless. He was power hungry, incredibly power hungry. In fact, at one point during his reign, there was a rumor going around that he had actually died. And one of the things that he had done within Jerusalem is he had set up his own high priest within the temple. And when the Jews heard that Antiochus had died, they sought to put their own high priest back into the temple. But as it turned out, Antiochus hadn't really died. And seeing this supposed rebellion, he killed something like 40,000 Jews in the span of three days. He was ruthless. He even eventually goes in and he offers a a, a pig as a burnt offering in the temple of the Lord. Obviously, the Jews do not eat pig, right? They're kosher. These pigs were viewed as unclean. Yet Antiochus takes a pig into God's temple and he sacrifices one there as a burnt offering. He also ends up putting a statue of Zeus within the temple of the Lord as well. He forces the Jews to stop many of their religious practices like daily offerings and circumcision and the Sabbath day and forcing them to eat unclean meat. And our propensity is to say, well, hang on a second. These are God's people. Why is God not protecting his people? And the words in, in verse 12 have to stick out like a sore, sore thumb. Look at there again. It says, and it will act and prosper. A better sense is in the New American Standard. And it says, and it, meaning Antiochus, the little horn, will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So God says and shows Daniel within a vision, the wicked will prosper in the glorious land. They are going, he's going to do filthy things. And so God, the wicked are prospering and your people are being slaughtered. The wicked general is acting according to his wicked will and prospering. How could you let this happen? You're supposed to be the God who saves, right? So here Daniel is in exile because of the sin of the people. And he looks at what's going to happen when they get back to the land. And he sees nothing but atrocity. But again, verse 12 gives us the reason as to why this is happening to them. 
Again, the New American Standard, I think, is more clear. It says, And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. So why were God's people given over to the little horn? Because of transgression. Look at verse 24. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men. And who else does he destroy? The people who are the saints. Daniel's people would be wicked. They would transgress. And Antiochus would come in and he would destroy the saints. Brothers and sisters, do you not see that you and me both deserve to be destroyed because of our transgressions? So why aren't we? If you and I deserve the same outcome here, if you and I deserve what these saints in Israel got from Antiochus, and we recognize as, as Christians that we are sinful in and of ourselves, we're dead in our trespasses and our sins, we've been conceived in iniquity, that all of those things are true about us, and that aside from Christ, that we are enemies of God, why don't we receive the destruction that these saints and these people in this land have received And it's because somebody has come and stood in our place. That the gospel is true. That Jesus came and he rode on that donkey, right? On Palm Sunday. And he rode into the city of Jerusalem. And he did wonderful things and taught things. And he cleansed the temple. And he eventually is betrayed, right? In Gethsemane. And he goes to the cross. Why is he there? It was our sin that put him there. And he dealt with it. And he handled it. On our behalf. This is the truth of the gospel. That he came and he took our place. And he gives us his righteousness in return. If God were to give you a vision like this one. And you saw in vivid imagery that the saints, that Christians, were ruthlessly killed. Not not only that, but before then they were acting in all sorts of debauched ways. How would you respond? God gives you a vision like this. Although I don't think that he would do that. Just imagine that. I began with the sermon by giving you various perspectives on how optimistically or pessimistically we should view the world in the church. In Daniel's vision, he sees God's people being wicked sinners. And he sees the world, the great Greek empire, tormenting God's people as a result of eventually Antiochus. And from Daniel's perspective in the vision... There was nothing to view optimistically. That God's people were in shambles and the worldly empires were as corroded as the one Daniel was currently a part of. And so you see all of this debauchery. You see all of this slaughter of Christians. You see all of these things that have happened. How do you practically respond? I love at least again Daniel 8 verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So this is what happens on the world stage. This is what happens in the glorious land where Daniel is not at the current moment. And so how is Daniel going to respond and act in the land of Babylon? I like what Brian Chappell says. He said, the trouble is not seeing the vision. The trouble is accepting it. 
Daniel has, been, has seen a most troubling vision of the transgression and the obliteration of his own people. And he has overcome and he is sick for days. You see, this is not like the, a Christmas carol. Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. When, when Scrooge is shown by the ghost of Christmas yet to come, the things that might be. These are the things that will be. And so how do you respond? Daniel's response to what will be displays at least a couple of very important points about him. First, that he must have had a hatred for sin. He must have hated seeing his people transgress when they got back home. But the second thing is that he loved his people. The combination of these two points make Daniel physically ill and he is appalled. Yet in light of the word of the Lord revealed to him and despite his own physical response, what does Daniel do? Daniel gets up and he goes to work. He gets up and he goes about the king's business. Daniel, your own people are going to turn out to be wicked sinners again and again. This whole repetition. Time to get up and go to work. Daniel, your your own people are going to be slaughtered by tens of thousands. Time to get up and go to work. Daniel, your God's temple is going to be defiled by the sacrifice of a pig and the worship of Zeus. Time to get up and go to work. Brothers and sisters, the sovereignty of God over all things and how he determines things will play out in the stages of the church and the world is never an excuse to sit back and do nothing. You hear this kind of thing all the time in regard to God's sovereignty. Well, why should I evangelize if God is sovereign? Why should I pray to him if God is sovereign? Why should I work hard if God is sovereign? And everything is going to play out the way that God wants it to play anyway. But those are the wrong responses to the sovereignty of God. You cannot read Daniel without having the overpowering sense that God is sovereign over every little piece of Daniel's life. You cannot read prophecy like we have read this morning and not see that God is totally sovereign. This vision was as good as done. It had been determined by God and it would play out a couple hundred years following Daniel in the land of Israel. But the response, despite knowing the terrible tragedy of his people, the response of Daniel was not to hunker down and to become a recluse and to back away from the world and to back away from the church or back away from Babylon or anything like that. It was not to take his nest egg and to go to the beach and squander the rest of his life. Just because he was given a pessimistic view of the world in this vision and even a pessimistic view of what God's people were going to do, it didn't mean that he could practically and should practically do nothing with his life. Daniel's response after being sick for a few days was to get up and to go to work. Because he knew the vision would come to pass. He knew his God was sovereign. And because God is sovereign, he knew he could trust him. And so what does he do in demonstration of this? He arises and goes about his work. But let me ask you. If you knew that the end of the world was coming soon, what would you do? I don't think this would happen again, but let's say that somehow God let you know that he was going to return in your lifetime specifically. I will come back in your lifetime. Could be a year from now, could be 20 years from now. What would you do? I think it would say a lot about you. Would we be tempted to quit our job? 
to eat, drink, and be merry because Christ is coming in our lifetime? I mean, and you see this by, by the kind of like end of the world predictors, and unfortunately they use the Bible to try to say, oh, the end of the world is coming on May 19th, 2018. I've decoded the Bible and figured that out. And so people literally sell their houses and spend their mortgages uh, or, you know, their equity. They spend it on, you know, signs for the highway and everything that the end of the world is on May 19th and they do all that sort of stuff, right? How would you respond if you knew that the end of the world was coming in your days? Would there be a sense that you wouldn't have to work that hard? That you wouldn't need to build up an inheritance for your children, as the Bible talks about, laying up for your children and your grandchildren? You wouldn't need to do that because Jesus is coming. You wouldn't need to send your kids to school. No need to take education too seriously, right? Because Jesus is coming back. The great reformer of Germany, Martin Luther, was asked what he would do if he knew the end of the world was coming next week. And do you know what he said? He said, I would plant an apple tree. The end of the world is coming in a week. What would you do? I'd plant an apple tree. The 18th century preacher John Wesley was asked basically the same general question. What would you do if you knew the world was going to end in a week? And he pulled out his calendar and he said, well, Monday I have this to do. Tuesday I have this to do. Wednesday I have this to do. The point is that regardless of the end being near or not, despite the end being bleak or not for the world, despite the end being bleak or not for the church, the point is living a consistent and faithful life in spite of it. And I think that what the vision of Daniel 8 would have done for Daniel and what it should even do for us and what the Bible sets forward for us, that the world itself is going to continue to erode until he comes and makes all things new. But unless you think that the erosion of what surrounds you doesn't have a point, it certainly does have a point. And part of it is to produce in you a great longing for the return of the Lord and a return back to a Edenic state. Back to where it is beautiful and glorious and perfect, where we are forever with the Lord and living in perfection with Him. Does not tragedy, when you look at the news and you see the things that are happening within the world, does not that tragedy push you and produce in you? How long, O oh Lord? Like how long? When are you going to come? As Christians who live in a hopeless world, and for Daniel, this is certainly bleak. We should be exceedingly hopeful because the world is not where our hope is. We are not of the world. And so our hope is not in someone or something that is in the world either. Our hope is in Christ. And we know that when he returns, that he's going to put away all sadness. He's going to wipe the tears from our eyes. That he's going to establish righteousness and beauty. And that this earth is going to be purified by fire. And we are forever going to be with the Lord. And until then, how do you live? It's okay that wicked and sad events make you sick. And it is right to be appalled by these things. But we arise and we go about the king's business. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to 